if we really want to achieve something uh, numerically zero we also need to have a process which is which can which can be quantifiable to me one of the first step towards reaching the net zero is trying to understand how much do we really own in terms of buildings or how many buildings have we built so far Hi, I'm Rajan Dravel. I'm a professor at Sept University and also senior advisor at the research center at Sept University called Center for Advanced Research and Building Science. And you're listening to a podcast on understanding the future. Hello, everyone. I'm Puneet Gandhi. Senior Associate with the Climate Center for Cities at the National Institute of Urban Affairs and welcome to the Season 3 of Understanding the Future podcast. I have been working and studying in the field of sustainability and climate change for more than 8 years and I have realized that I have a lot of questions on how we can build cities in India that are more climate focused. With Understanding the Future podcast, I interact with experts, entrepreneurs and government officials to understand what it takes to bring all the different solutions to the ground as well as how can systemic changes be developed on ground. We will further anchor all the topics being discussed with different skill sets required. This will help us understand the future of cities and future of work in Indian context. If you are tuning in for the first time, do check out our previous episodes. Also, don't forget to check out the Climate Practitioners India Network, a members-led solutions-oriented platform for climate practitioners across India. And join it through the show note. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the season three of Understanding the Future. I'm your host, Pranit Gandhi, Senior Associate with the Climate Center for Cities. And today we have with us Dr. Rajan Rao. He is a senior advisor of Center for Advanced Research in Building Science and Energy, and CRDF professor at uh, for Building Energy Performance at the SEP University. Today he will help us understand the topic of built environment. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rao. Thanks, Monet. Thank you. Uh, so I think let's uh, start with the most basic question where we can start on built environment. What do we exactly mean by built environment? Uh, is it, what are we looking at? So Puneet, I think city itself is a built environment. If we if we really look at it that way, uh, it would be impossible to separate out what is a built environment within the city. Uh, to me, it itself is a built environment. So, however, uh, just trying to split few things uh for better understanding anything which is a building construction is we can it call it a built space and something which is not built is sort of open space now open space does not mean that anything which is not built is an open space open space also have a definition you can't call uh, alleys and small narrow lanes as a open space also a lot of infrastructure spaces such as waste treatment plants or uh, transport node depots and other things also are part of the cities so so to me uh, built unbuilt together is a environment because the moment we build we also create or we also have an impact on unbuilt yeah so uh, my understanding about built environment 
in the city, the city itself is a building market. Okay, uh, so I just have a clarification. So when you say open spaces can also be part of so, uh, the landscape gardens now that we have in city, will also be part of somewhere built environment because it's somewhere built in. Yeah, I would like to believe that way. That not just about manicured uh, landscape spaces, but also large Hindi word called maidan, certain private plots which are also not uh, being uh, occupied by buildings also is an open space. But uh, again, it's like uh, whether it is an unbuilt or it is an open, defini- different of definition in, in, in that. Uh, to me, unbuilt is uh, something which is going to be going to have a buildings in future, but open is something the community or city uh, will be using that for very long period of time. Now, whether it is garden or uh, urban forest or just a maidan. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, so when when we talk about it, I think one of the things that does come up frequently because uh, most of the now narratives is also going towards developing net zero or zero carbon kind of built environment. And uh, so how do we uh, kind of map that? Because in terms of specifically buildings, it's a huge area. How do we make sure that how many properties do we have and how will that affect the whole uh, development of that kind of uh, net zero approach or something? Yeah, so the net zero itself suggests us that we should quantify uh, and we should have numbers. Now, that means whether it is a carbon numbers or emission numbers or operational energy numbers. and when we are trying to reach towards either operational zero carbon or life cycle assessment zero carbon, it is a different uh, uh, point of discussion. But if we really want to achieve something uh, numerically zero, we also need to have a process which is which can which can be quantifiable. Uh, and to me, one of the first step towards reaching the net zero is trying to understand how much do we really own in terms of buildings or how many buildings have we built so far in a city. Um, although numbers about cities are available that okay, 400 square kilometer of a city area or urban area or urban agglomerate, out of that 7, 10, 15% is uh, uh, rooftop area or rather footprint area, sometimes some, some cities we talk about 22%, 25% as well, uh, then 13, 14% is uh, road network and so on and so forth. But what we do not really know is that total amount of floor space because the third dimension uh, comes into the picture. Uh, although I may have a 200 square kilometer of my city uh, having the built spaces on or, or the footprint, but that 200 square kilometer may be occupying about or maybe housing about uh, 400 square kilometer of floor space. So footprint versus floor space is again uh, something which we need to distinguish and understand. So when I say uh, what is the building stock do we have, uh, that means that how many buildings do we have? What are the characteristics? How are they going to be used? How old they are? How new they are? 
And as far as uh, my area is concerned, primarily to embodied energy and operational energy, we also try to understand um, what are the thermal characteristics of these buildings. Uh, so in that case, when we're looking at it, there's, there's quite a lot of parameters that we're trying to look for. Is it available in cities easily because, uh, and how can we actually get this kind of data to be able to even start analyzing what is required? So until you ask, you're not going to get it, right? So uh, data generally doesn't get created or doesn't get gathered until somebody demands for it, until somebody feels that now I think we really need the data uh, to understand how do we reach to net zero carbon or net zero energy and so on. So, so data definitely is not available. Uh, if at all it is available, uh, it might be in a semantic fashion, it may not be a spatial data. Uh, if at all it is available, it uh, the quality of data also uh, needs to be because for, for example, if I give the property tax data is one of the uh, closest data set which we can look at how many buildings do we have in a city, but whether do we have that property geotagged on a city or do we really know how old that, that building is or whether that particular building is using an air conditioner or uh, high uh, electricity consuming equipment or not. So when we are moving towards and again, repeating, moving towards zero or net zero, trying to move towards that. Uh, there are few iterations or few avatars of property tax data is required for us to look at. But to say it is not available, it is not correct. But also to say it is available, it is also not correct. Uh, probably we need to incarnate property tax data in number of ways to, to make it usable for what we want to do. Okay, okay. And uh, so, okay, so let's say that uh, we have been able to create or been able to source all these data, uh, this much of efforts, and uh, we ha now have somewhere close to the whole city's data on the lines of how, uh, where are the buildings, what the space, all different kinds of characteristics in place as well. Now, on a city level, how can that data help us determine any kind of way forward? So, number of ways, like say, if we, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, let's say if we are going for certain kind of urban renewal uh, projects where more FSI 1 in 1 square kilometer uh, would be turned into FSI 4 because of the transport oriented development or because that land area is been designated as a central business district or whatever it is. For any kind of urban renewal project, uh, obviously the development will take place. Development will have an impact on uh, carbon emission. But if we know what is the base case or what is the current situation right now in terms of amount of building and their carbon footprint or their their operational energy numbers, what we can do is that we can. We can achieve our developmental goals by having a higher floor space or whatever, but at the same time, we can, we can embed certain kind of design decisions, uh, embed certain kind of code compliance within that one square kilometer to make sure that our carbon intensity, operational carbon intensity doesn't go up. 
uh, and remains at the same level as uh, FSI 1. So let's say it at, at in, in 2022, my energy performance or whatever index is 1. Uh, even in 2042, it should remain same despite I'm having a more flow space. So, so I think those are the, that is one uh, where uh, one can use this data, one, one can sort of build upon uh, our future looking at some of these data. Second is, it's not just about what city wants to do or what city government wants to do or state government wants to do. It's also uh, industry needs to have a certain kind of signals uh, when you when you start looking at uh, some of these data. So, for example, again, if I go back to that one square kilometer of uh, space in one city or built up space in one city, and if uh, we are looking at any kind of policy intervention like energy conservation building code or Econeva Samhita, uh, industry also needs to come forward and envisage that what would be the, the uh, what do you call a market requirement for better insulation or better glass or better um, air conditions and not just a manufacturing industry but also service industry that how architects or how MEP engineers needs to uh, or what is a kind of uh, business they are going to they are going to get the moment you start looking at a policy implementation? So I think uh, a certain kind of uh, policy intervention uh, and how this building stock is going to help us looking at the future, along with our developmental goals, uh, would be interesting to look at. If, if that answers your question. So that does that does, and I think uh, uh, so. I specifically kind of uh, find the energy per flow space area kind of very interesting as a unit. I'm not sure. Do we have something like that in India as of now, or what is the common goal around it? Yeah, so um, for operational energy, we do have a metric, um, which is we call it an energy performance index of a building. Uh, which means that how much amount of electricity or energy I'm using per floor space or per, per unit floor space over the year. Okay. Um, so if I translate that into a unit, it's called a kilowatt hour a meter square uh, year. Uh, over the year is important to... Uh, and, uh, include in this because sometimes in certain seasons we use far more than what we use in a, in a other se other seasons like winter yeah. or summer. Hence, uh, this energy performance index is uh, is having a time step in it. Generally, yeah. if you look at the any kind of energy performance, let's say for cars or for washing machines, we don't have a time step built in that. It's it's like how yeah. many kilometers per liter you don't include how, how, how many what whether it's a one month or two months but yeah. because building does use uh, energy depending upon outdoor conditions um, kilowatt hour per meter square a year is yeah. the is the unit of uh, energy performance okay and uh, for Indian context uh, does it vary according to the geography or have you standardized it and what it is. No, no, no. No, we, we, we cannot standardize it because, okay. uh, 
because of the seasons, uh, because of the climate pattern, because of the climate zones, not just about climate zones, but also uh, uh, usage pattern. Uh, National Building Code defines 16 typologies of the building. Mm-hmm. And these 16 typologies will have different kind of energy performance index. Even if you talk about residences, yeah. uh, probably I have three people in my house and you will have two people in your house and somebody else may have a, all three generations uh, living in the same house. A house may have a same floor space, but because there are higher occupancy or lower occupancy, energy performance uh, index will change. So uh, we really can't standardize it. But what we can do is at least we can create a baseline that in general, if you have looking at the national level trends that what is a family size and national level trend, what is the uh, 100 square meter, 200 square meter, 500 square, uh, 300 square meter buildings, uh, and what is the energy intensity in that? So we definitely need to have a baseline and benchmarks. But to standardize and to implement it for all kind of occupants or uh, owners might be too much to look at. Okay. And uh, here, when we're comparing this, uh, even at the Indian scale, uh, how does it vary specifically with Western world? Because I think uh, India still consumes somewhere close to 30% in at least the residential part of it, other than the building for uh, electricity, 30% electricity in the residential part. How does that compare overall across the world? So again, this 30-40%, uh, I am a little unsure where does it come from, but uh, two significant change we have uh, from the rest of the world and especially the um, Western countries. One is uh, in many Western countries, they have more than one fuel uh, supply to a building for operational use. It could be gas, it could be uh, hot water also directly yeah. to some places and it could be electricity. Uh, so now when it comes to in India, it's predominantly electricity yeah. and not a gas or hot water. So what is a major difference is that in Western countries, they use a metrics called energy use intensity or EUI which actually normalizes the gas versus uh, uh, gas versus electricity and so on and so forth. Versus what we use in India is energy performance index. So EUI is a non-Indian unit and EPI is a sort of Indian unit. At the same time, uh, electricity generation and uh, fuel mix within that cool. I, uh, is, is very different. Some, some countries heavily depending upon uh, nuclear or much lesser coal, uh, much higher renewable uh, source versus in India, we have a different kind of energy mix. So that's where also uh, things are very different. But looking at the Indian context, and especially since you talked about residences, Indian government did uh, take a very, I would say, a progressive step by moving little away from energy efficiency uh, mm. when they were looking at uh, building codes for residential. So if you look at India's uh, building codes or policy uh, regarding buildings, we have two separate and very different stand. When you're looking at inner commercial buildings, you are looking at high performance 
uh, how do we really reduce the intensity of energy but when it comes to uh, residential buildings uh, it is how do we really increase the thermal comfort without use of electricity yeah. so that that's a quite a bit of paradigm shift i would say that that and how to decrease discomfort is you have altogether different kind of strategies and how to increase efficiency of a machine is another way of looking at it uh, so i'm glad in fact that thermal comfort is very much been looked at from affordable housing point of view and even residential point of view but if you look at the energy use in uh, buildings or rather electricity i would say if i have 100 rupees of income uh, probably indians are spending about 8 to 10 rupees in electricity bill so economics wise is about 10% but i think uh, because we have a lot of buildings or a lot of residential buildings the energy use in buildings for residential might be higher than that which could be 30% but i'm little unsure about it. okay okay so this is this is really interesting that if you have such a high uh, <coughs> ratio of uh, money going towards electricity or energy per se and uh, so one thing that again comes back always is so uh, putting up more renewable energy across built environment uh, but now uh, i'm i'm not sure and i think this is one of the doubts i have had for uh, quite some long time that uh, putting renewable energy on tall buildings is not not means it's useful but not as much as when there is more flat structure in place or more uh, uh, smaller buildings in place because then only you are able to optimally utilize the energy being generated for the whole house uh, or flat or major amount of the electricity consumption uh, but generally in larger flats and all it might only cater to your certain common utilities uh, but at the same time when we come to the urban planning side of it it is said that more compactity is much better because then your transport reduces uh, and everything else reduces so how can that be balanced across in this this is something just a doubt that i have had so for it i think uh, we need to distinguish between or rather when we talk about renewable energy we should also address or mention not just of solar photovoltaic or rooftop solar photovoltaic but um, hot water or solar water hot water or probably um, biomass uh, and i won't say a wind would be the uh, appropriate way of looking at uh, renewable within the city but uh, biomass and and um, solar rooftops or hot water systems might be yeah might be might we should be sort of talking about that however when you say that uh, high rise structure complexity um, does not provide more opportunity to for installation of renewable energy sources what you meant is primarily solar photovoltaic yeah or uh, even uh, if i have to say uh, for hot water biomass you can still get it and but for hot water as well it would be then a bit less sure so um, i think that's where people who are sort of work with the scientific basis we have a i would say reasonable amount of concern uh, towards the sort of use of 
rooftop solar photovoltaic in the middle of the city. Um, uh, thermodynamics doesn't help us, uh, uh, or rather, thermodynamics does not uh, is is not favoring having a solar photovoltaic in the middle of the city. Uh, and hence, probably we might be getting into, or rather, we are getting into um, another cycle of problems when we start putting a solar photovoltaic on rooftops in the middle of the city. Solar photovoltaic as a technology is excellent to generate electricity. There is absolutely no doubt about it. But distributed generation uh, through solar rooftops probably we really require a very very close look. And I know I whatever I'm saying will raise the eyebrows on many fronts. Uh, but uh, let me tell you, I mean, thermodynamics doesn't help us. Uh, uh, thermodynamics is not. In favor of us when it comes to uh, and why is that just because so I am from that background and this is a new insight for me so I'm just curious. So, but uh, the way the way we generate electricity through the photovoltaic mm. and efficiency which we are getting on a solar photovoltaic uh, efficiency could be probably 16, 70 percent or sometimes sometimes can more but I'm in an average, looking at last seven, ten years of installation across the city, I would say sixteen is also a very high number. Yeah. Uh, but the amount of heat you generate, even if you are, I mean, there is. A, let me let me put it a little simply. Uh, people have a notion that if I put a solar rooftop on my flat roof, my roof is getting shaded so it is not getting heated up uh, and probably I may have a lower surface temperature on my up top floor or my air temperature might be lower on top floor uh, but if you look at the efficiency of solar photovoltaic amount of solar radiation which falls on it and amount of electricity that does it generate where does other energy go uh, and that generally remains in the vicinity of uh, solar photovoltaic panels, and definitely it is uh, it is contributing towards urban heat island. Now, when you are having uh, now extent of this needs to be looked at very closely in Indian cities, especially where you have a very large uh, distributed solar photovoltaic uh, distributed energy uh, generation in the cities. But what is a what is the benefit you're getting? Uh, let's say if I generate one kilowatt of energy additional through solar photovoltaic, but my uh, urban heat island because of that goes by point even point zero five degree centigrade air temperature. Probably I might need to use air conditioner more, and then do I really need to generate electricity in my rooftop? So it's a quite complex problem. Okay. Uh, but it definitely is uh, is leading us towards uh, towards uh, towards a problem which uh, we should be avoiding. And to do that, we definitely require a science based approach, uh, which probably my team is working right now. Uh, but some more work is required. But intent, I mean, inclination is that probably we are doing something which we should not be doing.
Okay. Uh, so I I will not follow on this, and I will like to read whatever research comes out. But uh, one last question on this line is: uh, uh, So as you said that yes, only fifteen percent is being utilized for energy, but whatever the case was, uh, the energy that sunlight was anyways coming on that rooftop, and uh, somewhere now of that fifteen percent is being utilized as electricity. Right? Won't that be that case? So your 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 base point is uh, something which is really really bad. Well, let's say if I have a tar roof, I have a leaky roof, and I have placed a tar on top of it, and uh, amount of heat which will get in my top floor versus if I have a solar photovoltaic, uh, probably definitely you are you are going to have much lesser heat coming inside the building if you have solar photovoltaic, but if you have a high reflectance paint with a high solar reflectance and high emissivity, it is not going to uh, heat up your roof at all. Okay. And against that, against that, if you look at the solar photovoltaic installation, it does it does not favor solar photovoltaic. So, and and the cool roof, so high emissivity, high SRI cool roof, is sort of business as usual in many cities now. Uh, no, that's that's pretty interesting. I, I will surely be reading up the research whenever it comes out on this. But, uh, this also does break down and get into a lot of concepts that I have had with the uh, on-ground experience, and that is where I'm kind of more curious about this. Uh, in the rooftop solar sector specifically. Uh, so now, but the other side of which environment comes is towards uh, uh, embodied carbon and. Um, when we are trying to, what are the different ways in which this can be lowered down? Because uh, we are, uh, urbanization is happening across India, and we are going to uh, just have much more embodied in it. But how can that be lowered down so that overall energy consumption can be reduced? So, I think embodied energy part or embodied carbon part also needs to be looked at from both sides, supply side and demand side. Uh, manufacturing processes of uh, the materials which we are, we are going to use or we are using in urban sector, uh, they need to improve. Uh, now, it, it, there, there the diversity is extremely high. I mean, India has one of the best of the best cement plants in terms of its efficiency and worst of the worst plant also. Uh, so, one way we we need to uh, look at it is it how the supply side of building materials uh, decarbonize themselves. But at the same time, uh, demand side where architects and builders and uh, developers are working, what is optimum use of cement, steel, aluminum, glass? And do we have a, until we, until we, Make a transition towards fully decarbonization material or decarbonized material. Uh, what are the alternatives we have, whether it be the agro based products or products which are uh, structurally extremely efficient and we really don't need to use so much of steel and cement and so on and so forth? Or can we really avoid or lessen the dependence on aluminum and glass? Uh, and that's where the supply side uh, design interventions are uh, are going to matter. Uh, 
we are not just about India, but across the across the world, people are now looking at embodied carbon more closely, uh, and everybody is struggling to get data. Everybody is struggling to make a matrix, uh, matrices, I would say. So, um, and I think quite a few people in India are working towards that, um, but we are yet to find any framework which can be implemented across the country, both ways, policy-wise as well as a practice side. Okay, so uh, in that context now, then uh, a lot of these frameworks are also coming. I think one of the last things that does come into the built environment is on the lines of energy efficiency and uh, what kind of things can be developed to make sure that uh, buildings are energy efficient in itself so that uh, water utilization, electricity, energy, everything is reduced per se. What can be done to make sure of that? For especially existing stock as well, because I'm sure that we are not just going to use that out. So, uh, existing stock. Um, then let me let me give you an answer in two parts. One on existing stock and what we can do for the future buildings. Uh, existing stock, we don't have much. Uh, I would say options, but to go for building material-based retrofits. That means you have an existing wall, put an insulation, you have an existing window, change it to better glass, better performance. If your architecture uh, allows you to have a shading devices, external shading devices, just practice that. Uh, and also not just about building envelope, but also change the electricity or rather lighting on an HVAC systems. Uh, and Fortunately, we have a very good business models for uh, doing retrofits. Um, the energy service companies, the ESCOs, who are willing to invest upfront in changing some of the uh, HVAC or even lighting, uh, and will uh, and that ultimately will help reduce the energy consumption, will make a win-win case for consumers as well as for the companies. So I do see, uh, although a lot of uh, work has happened in ESCO market, but I think it it's still for large building and large facilities. Uh, individual owners or individual, even I would say, uh, uh, office buildings, if they really need to adopt ESCO, I think we are a little away from that. Uh, not that we don't have a technology available, not that we don't have a contracting model available, I think, but there's a bit of credibility gap between two sectors, and that's why things are not picking up. Uh, for the future buildings, for the new buildings, definitely uh, we need to look at not just operational energy or energy efficiency, but as I say, that two more things. Uh, even after designing and constructing a building whether without use of air conditioner can we can we increase the thermal comfort hours uh, i know that the, the way uh, the outdoor climates are i am not of the opinion that we should not use air conditioner we must use air conditioner because that links with the health and productivity and many other things but how do we use air conditioner uh, how much do we use is all depends upon our building design and construction of that um, you might be aware about the global cooling price work which we did, where we have already identified 80% better 
building systems or rather HVAC systems. That means that uh, technology is available, knowledge is available. Probably it's time where we nudge the policy and through policy, a market is definitely ready to, to provide services. Uh, but moment we look at everybody at the same level playing field, which only policy can do, uh, I'm sure that we will be able to move very quickly. Okay, and oh, so I'm, I'm glad you brought up the policy wheel as well because I think okay, while we have all these different different kinds of solutions in place now, what are the things that uh, ULVs can do at least from the city point of view to make sure that from policy front all these things can actually go towards uh, net zero and uh, net zero built environment or something? I think. Personally, I feel that we should work out a model that where we take ULB out of the picture, or rather, we lessen the burden of ULB. I think anything and everything we want to do in a city, um, we just look at the ULB as a point of contact, and we hope that you will be able to solve it. But just just look at, I mean, ULBs are stretched, not just about their their capacity. Uh, not just about their finances, but also amount of expectation all of us will have from the ULB. I think it's it's little too much. I mean, they, these are these guys are managing water supply, they're managing sewage system, they're managing transport, they're managing their schools, uh, healthcare, and on top of that, something which they have traditionally they have not managed, and they have nothing to do with it, which is electricity. I think to me, I think a little bit too much to expect from them. I mean, they, who is using electricity? I mean, Rajan Ravel in my home, in my, my university, I'm using electricity. Yeah. Building bylaws do have limits to, to govern. I mean, building bylaws traditionally, and I think even in future, I don't think the building bylaws will get into uh, a domain of operation of a building. Building bylaws, limit stops when you construct a building legally, right? So even if I am making my building as per building bylaws and let's say energy conservation building code gets implemented by ULB, I think things stops there and then things should stop there for ULB. If we say that, if you ask ULB that, no, you come to Rajan Rawal's house or his office and every year you check what is his electricity bill, I think it's something something too much to ask for. So at the at the at the institutional level, at the ministry level, at the national level, I think we need to really debate and discuss that how do we not just build a capacity in the in the ULBs and um, ask them to enforce energy conservation building code or national building code or eco nevasamita and so on and so forth. But I think uh, some other responsibility needs to be given for at least operational of the building to some somebody else. Um, and just just leave these guys do what they're doing and let them do that best instead of I mean I always say that how much can we teach kids right I mean being an architecture student we used to do surveying labeling we used to do history of architecture we used to do uh, structure we used to do uh, design studios sketching um, and then you have a whole lot of other electives and then on top of that people say hey they must know how to how to design energy efficient building they must know building in information management systems i think it's too much to ask within the uh within the domain of so similar way i mean uh, 
we need to understand the limits of ULB and limits of building bylaws, uh, and then think about something more structurally at the institutionally and structurally at the national level. And I'm, I'm I'm saying this, I'm I'm saying this based on I mean, building codes have not been implemented in a most progressive states of US and China as well. What does it show us? It shows that there is a limit to the system. We must recognize that and we must find a way to put this responsibility to some other system. Yeah, I, 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 it's a very interesting take, which I do kind of see as well, because uh, so I have traditionally worked in the rooftop industry before I joined the urban space. And uh, I've seen that these are the two biggest domains which don't talk, but uh, have the most to do with whatever we are trying to do, at least on the mitigation part of it. Uh, and it, it just does not sync up, which is, uh, and you don't even know how to sync it up because uh, the asymmetry of knowledge is anyways going to be higher. So it does make sense. Uh, but so let me, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying that the water supply is a responsibility of a ULB, right? Is electricity supply a responsibility of ULB? No. Then why are we putting them into the spot to regulate it? No, it's a, it's a, it's a very, uh, means again, the amount of departments that increase in each city is going to get more complex eventually as well because information asymmetry is going to increase. But uh, on, more on the policy front that we have to see, uh, what are things should be required to make sure that something like net zero can be built up uh, on the built environment level? Let's assume that someone will take it up, but from the policy front. So my my um, general attitude towards this is that yes, we need to have building codes, and these building codes must percolate down to uh, states and ULB. Make sure that buildings which comes up and not only building but municipal services which is actually servicing this building also becomes energy efficient at the design stage. And then onwards, uh, probably somebody else needs to regulate or somebody else needs to monitor the energy usage in the buildings. There, market can play a huge role. It's kind of services which they can offer, kind of uh, products they can offer, uh, not just to design a building, but also to operate a building yeah. towards net zero. Uh, I think we need a not manufacturing sector as well as service sector to get excited about this market segment, buildings and operational of buildings. I mean, we know that a uh, lot of people are into operation of uh, hotels and hospitals and also Travel agency do operate a large fleet of cars and buses. Uh, the moment we have similar kind of uh, service sector which managing the buildings, uh, facility managers also needs to start looking at the buildings. Probably we will be able to reach because net zero is not just a design stage; it's a design and operation both. I always tell uh, students that I mean, if you buy best of the best car, and if you don't know how to drive it efficiently, it's not going to give you a mileage. Yeah. So it's not just about 
employing and training architects to design buildings and urban planners to design better cities, but also management and operation of the cities. Uh, so both ways, policies and market, both needs to um, needs to get excited about this net zero targets. No, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think it's a, <clears throat> from the mitigation point of view, it's a pretty solid thing that is required to make sure that with the rapid organization that we're having, it does not cater to increase in that much uh, electricity usage or energy usage per se. And uh, I think to end uh, this, uh, the last question we generally ask everyone is on the lines of what are the different skill sets required now to make sure that uh, things are in place to make sure, uh, uh, make net zero built environment for the future? I mean, as I mentioned, that one side you have three skill set required how to design, how to construct, and how to operate. And that skill set uh, definitely can come from academic institutes and researching organizations. Uh, civil society organizations can help them to percolate down to a, a large mass in just about capacity building or professional training and so on and so forth. But at the same time, we also require a skill set to manage your cities and manage your buildings towards a net zero. Uh, although I did talk about solar rooftop, but we also, the way our houses are getting uh, uh, managed by washing machine annual maintenance contract or air conditioning annual maintenance contract or, uh, or uh, water purifier annual maintenance contract, uh, similar way, for building rooftops, we, I mean, we should have that kind of uh, uh, services available at affordable uh, pro uh, prices, uh, and also maintaining our buildings and large buildings and lots of uh, facilities for the management. So I think it is not just about technical skill set of construction and design, but also management skill set, um, both at the private sector and public sector. Okay. Thank you so much. I think that was a pretty concise uh, as well on the lines of things specifically required, which is very important. Uh, any specific things that I have missed out on in this topic and you would like to cover? No, I think uh, I think you covered quite a bit. I don't have anything else to add. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for giving us your time. And, uh, we are glad that you could come on board and uh, we can have a conversation on this because this is surely very insightful and I'm actually looking forward to the reading of the research on uh, renewable energy uh, because that is something that does interest me a lot. Yeah, it'll, it'll come out, but we are very conscious that whenever we come out with that study, it will have a bit of cascading effect and hence we are very conscious before we come out with that. Hopefully, we'll be able to do that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Monique, for calling me. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. Do subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and follow us on all social media channels. For more details about the Climate Center for Cities and registration on Climate Practitioners India Network, click on the link in the show notes. The episode is conceptualized and produced by Punit Gandhi. A big thank you to the whole team at CCube and NIUA for supporting the development of the podcast. 
stay tuned for the next episode